0: you all. They are the, the gears that keep the church running in so many ways. Um, they and many others who uh, often we don't get a chance to see their activity. Um, a few other notes, Adults and Children's Sunday will be back running this Sunday. There is a class in here that I'm leading on spiritual gifts, a class that Larry Larson's leading, room one, and I'd encourage you to attend those if you want to. And in addition to that, I'm supposed to announce that there's a building and grounds meeting Tuesday night that apparently isn't on the calendar. With that said, it's good for us as God's people to come together to him in prayer to share our needs, concerns, and thanks, and then to lift them up to the Father. A couple of prayer requests to note first a praise that Bennett William Hopman was born Thursday, seven pounds and six ounces, so make sure to congratulate John and Sarah when you see them. He's a a real cute little guy, and in addition to that, um, I want to be in prayer um, for our friend Joe Mann, who we've been praying for, who passed away on the 21st, and especially praying for his wife, Julie. Are there any other thanksgivings or prayers that you would like to share with the people? All right, let's come together to the Father in prayer. O oh God and Father, ruler of all, We praise and thank you for the blessings with which you fill our world. We praise you for the sun's heat on our faces, for the wind's brush on our cheeks, for the rain that waters the earth, and the green things that grow up from it. We give thanks for the life that springs from the dirt and the life that springs up within our midst, especially giving thanks for the birth of Bennett Hopman. Father, you are a reigning king. We ask you to remind us of your sovereign hand in our lives, in our relationships, in our nation and in the world. Comfort us with the knowledge that you have set your Son over all rule and authority and every name that is named. Show forth your kingdom of peace in our midst as your people and in the world as your dominion. God, you are a king, but you are no tyrant, you are the servant ruler, the Lord of love. Meet us as we are brokenhearted, as we struggle as we grieve and grasp for hope be a kind presence to all those who weep in our midst and in our community especially to Julie Mann and the rest of her family in the loss of her husband and to those others in our midst who have suffered the sting of death our lord and our god we praise you as the one whose scepter brings healing to the nation spirit we praise you as a ruler who stoops down and meets us in distress christ We praise you as the Lamb who reigns and in whose name we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Invite the ushers to come forward as we participate in a time of giving our praise and tithes and offerings.
1: Would you please pray with me? Gracious and Heavenly Father, today is another new day in your creation. and We thank you for blessing us with it. We thank you for the promise you've made to be with us, to guide us, and to sustain us. And Father, we thank you for the hope you bring us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as a token of our, of our love and thankfulness, we, we have an offering for you, Lord. We ask that you would take these gifts... Multiply them and use them here and abroad so that others may experience the fullness of your love and your grace. Father, we ask all these things in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture lesson this morning is as we continue the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, where I will be reading from verses 5 through 11. So I had, please. Please invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please encourage you to take a Red Pew Bible that's located in front of you. Once again, chapter, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed In knowledge, in the image of his creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Pray with me. God and Father, you belongs all authority and dominion you separated light from darkness by your word and you break forth light in the darkness of our hearts by that same word i pray lord that you would be with all of us sinners as we listen to it be with me a sinner as i preach it. pray these things in your name jesus christ amen so before we dive in this morning um i want to note two things okay first of all um i am deeply committed to the idea of it's called systematic expository preaching, which is to say, expository means that you preach texts from the Bible, and you try to say what those texts say, rather than just kind of sharing some thoughts. And systematic means that you preach through books of the Bible. It's not the only thing that we'll ever do here, but it's something I'm committed to and something the tradition that Kish is a part of has been committed to, in part, because it makes you preach on texts that you would otherwise probably skip over. Um, and, um, and hard texts. text. And I say that because this morning is one of those hard texts, and I just want to acknowledge that up front, that this is going to be some heavier stuff that we're going to have to walk through, so please walk through it with me, and stay with me, and enter into dialogue about it. And then second, scripture sometimes deals with topics that you might not want your five-year-old to ask you about, at least I wouldn't. And if you were listening to the beginning of our text this morning, some of those topics also get talked about, so just want to note that. Um, there's nursery care, there's worship kids style, if you, um, <laughs> if you would like to have your kids go there. I just don't want anyone to, any parents ambushed by questions, they'd rather wait a few years to talk about. But um, that said, let's walk into this text. Have you ever had that experience of waiting for bad news to come? Um, I was thinking about it, as I was preparing, remembering just a couple months ago, it was maybe the last time with Elizabeth, when we were waiting for the prognosis, Um, on her cancer and it was one of those crazy emotionally conflicted times right and you don't know what to think beforehand Um, and the doctor came in and sat down and gave us the report Um, and it was bad news right in that moment hearing that though two things happened in my heart on the one hand I was I kind of didn't believe it and I was kind of angry right like what are you talking about doctor how dare you tell me this information I don't want to hear this Part of me was in denial, didn't want to know. But at the same time, in that moment, there was this kind of sense of relief that I don't think I expected. Sure, it wasn't the report we wanted, but at least we knew, right? We knew what the prognosis was, the uncertainty was gone, and the fight was ahead of us, but at least we had a name for the enemy. And those two responses... Denial and relief are similar to how I feel when I come to texts like this one in scripture. Paul has been emphasizing the centrality of Jesus and the gospel in his letter to the Colossians, and a lot of that has been dealing with wrong ways that people try to approach the Christian life. It's not about hollow religion or legalistic thinking or lists of rules that we try to follow. Paul's been dealing with all of that almost as if he's been been burning away the brush so that now he can start to actually move forward with talking about what the Christian life looks like. Now, though, starting at the beginning of chapter 3 that we discussed last week, Paul is diving into that discussion, and he isn't pulling any punches in our text this morning. Paul is seeking to tell us the truth about our enemy, sin, and calling us to fight it. He tells us we are sinners, And that the only solution is going to be to kill that sin. And we can bristle at that. We can feel angry. How dare you tell me this, we might wonder. Part of us doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to know. But at the same time, if you want to follow Jesus, there should be something freeing about this way of talking. First, because Paul has already laid the foundation of the gospel in this letter. He isn't telling us that we have to stop these things before Jesus will love us. Rather, he's saying that because Jesus has loved us, we need to fight these things. So he's not condemning us. What what Paul is trying to do is help us to name the enemy. He's telling us that we have the late stage cancer, and then he is telling us what we need to do to fight it. And that's where I want us to camp this morning. How does Paul tell us we should fight sin? In essence, I think in this text, he walks through this process. First, we find him naming the truth about sin. Then we see him grieving the fruit of sin. And finally, we see him killing the root of sin. Naming the truth of sin, grieving the fruit, and killing the root. Let's look at each of those in turn. Paul starts by naming the truth of sin. He gets right into it in verse 5. He says, Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and then he starts to list some sins. There are two lists in this passage, in verse 5 and 8, and each of them is themed around a certain set of sins. All right, and these lists aren't meant to be exhaustive, but the first set of sins Paul names in verse 5 is sexual sins, and he casts a broad net. So he starts with sexual immorality, a word which in scripture would mean all acts of sex outside the boundaries of marriage. And then he names impurity, by which he means other acts that aren't necessarily sex, but that are still within that same kind of category. And lust, which means it's not just physical acts, but also imagined ones, ones confined to our minds. And evil desires, which given the rest of this list probably means holding a view of sex and sexuality that's unbiblical even if you don't act it out in those ways and lastly a word your bible probably translates greed but doesn't just mean money it means any unchecked desire for physical pleasure just notice the breadth of that list paul isn't just naming a few acts that we hear people in big cities somewhere commit all right He isn't just saying that there are some sexual sinners out there. He's trying to name sin in a way that includes all of us. If we have ever acted out anything sexually outside of God's plan, or just fantasized about it, or just entertained the idea that it's desirable, or even just had a general love of physical pleasure over love for God and others, he's saying that we are sinners. Not one of us in the face of that list is innocent. I certainly am not. And that's the point. Paul says it in verse 7, you used to walk in these ways. He says, all of you, we all are being called to recognize our sin. And in verse 8, Paul provides this other list of sins. And it's noteworthy because it's a different list, right? This list is about sinful ways we treat people. First, Paul says anger and rage are sin. And look, we tend to excuse a lot of anger, I think. I've listened to cable news and talk radio. I think a lot of us view it as entertainment, But Paul says that it's sin. Sin because in anger we occupy the place of judgment reserved only for God. And sin because if left unchecked it can cause us to do terrible things. And then Paul says that malice is sin too. Malice means intending or wishing evil on other people. Have you ever wished something bad would happen to somebody that you didn't like? I have. And that's malice. and Slander destroying people's reputation, saying things about other people that aren't honoring, that don't build up their good name. And filthy language, which is a Greek word that only appears here in the Bible and probably doesn't refer so much to using bad words as saying bad things about people or to people, regardless of the specific words you use. Abusive language is how the NRSV translates it, which is probably more accurate. So sexual sin and relational sin. It's really interesting that Paul chooses to put those two areas side by side. I don't know what it was like in his world, but I suspect it might have been like ours in this way, that some Christians love to focus on one of those lists while not spending any time dealing with the other. The scholar N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this passage, made this comment that I found very convicting, which I'm tempted to try to do in his British accent, but I'm not going to. Um, (laughs) But he says, many Christians tend to concentrate on one list or the other. One knows of Christian communities that would be appalled at the slightest sexual irregularity, but which are nests of malicious intrigue, backbiting gossip, and bad temper. And conversely, of others where people are so concerned to live in untroubled harmony with each other that they tolerate flagrant immorality. The gospel has no room for behavior of either sort. So why does Paul put these two lists together? Maybe for the same reason that he casts such a broad net with each individual list. Because when he starts talking about the truth of sin, he wants us to feel the weight of it. He's naming the truth about sin as our universal condition. So what does that mean for us? Well, on the one hand, it means that we too need to be willing, like Paul, to name sin as sin. It's easy for us to hide behind pretty speech and euphemisms when we talk about disobedience to justify it. And we as the church do need to be willing to talk about things that scripture names sin as that way. Which means that there will be a certain courage necessary as we engage with the world around us. The church in America, sometimes for better and a lot of times for worse, has been used to the idea that the surrounding culture will largely be on board with our morality I don't think that's ever been as true as we like to think. I think that probably for a long time we've made compromises in order to get that respected status. But still, there were areas where historically something like Christian morals was accepted and respected. And in some of those areas, that has changed over the last few decades. And we as Christians can't let that change our convictions on these issues. I mean, look, you think about sexuality, right? And I think we have this notion that our era is unique, but in Paul's day, a Christian view of chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within was not the view of the surrounding culture. I think about Aristotle, right, who some of you guys have probably heard of, um, the ancient philosopher, who says that a man needs at least three kinds of women, a wife, to take care of his family, and a concubine for his romantic desires, and prostitutes to deal with his physical needs. That was the world that Paul and the early church lived in, all right? Christianity in his day was just as foreign and just as bizarre to their surrounding culture as I think some of us feel like it is today. That said, while Paul calls us to name sin as sin, this text also requires us to name sin as something that includes us. We're to name sin as something that always includes us rather than just applying it to some people out there. Just to say, look, I I kind of tried to come up with another application for this, but as I wrestled with the way that Paul addresses people and tries to draw them into conviction, it's the place the Spirit kept driving me. So evangelicals right now I spent a lot of time talking about homosexuality, which isn't wrong insofar as the culture is asking about it. We do need to bear witness to what scripture says. But if Paul's approach to sin is to teach us anything, it is to teach us that we always talk about sin in a way that includes us. Cast a broad net. And what I know, because I just looked up the statistics, is that less than 4% of the population is gay, right? 4%. And that in itself isn't even sinful. There are people who have same-sex attraction and choose to pursue chastity and be obedient to God in the way that they act. And that's, that's a noble thing, right? If you're here and that's your story, like that's something that's admirable and Christian. But regardless, at most, 4% of the population is gay. 25% of all marriages include adultery. And 95% of people under 40 have sex before they're married. And all of those things equally fall under the category that scripture would refer to as sexual immorality. So anything that we want to say about homosexual sin, we also need to be willing to say about people who are acting in heterosexual ways that are outside of God's design, who are a much bigger group and do include some of us. In fact, given that Paul in the same breathless lust An evil desire and a craving for physical pleasure as equal sins. That includes all of us right now, married or single, young or old. And there have been too many Christians who say cruel and harsh things about the gay community, but who get strangely quiet when you ask them about their romantic lives or the lives of their children. Which is not really naming sin as sin at all but just naming people with different sin struggles is somehow worse than us, which I realize is offensive to some of you. So please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we don't name sin as sin. I'm not saying that we deny what Scripture teaches about God's design for sexuality, including what it teaches on the issue of homosexuality. But what I am saying is that Scripture repeatedly, explicitly tells us that naming sin is something that starts with us, not with them, that we have to repent of our sins before we start talking to the world about repenting of theirs. Judgment begins with the household of God, 1 Peter 4.17 says. Or as Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, the church's job is to judge sexual immorality in their midst and leave it to God to deal with the world. And look, I know that some of us feel like marriage and family are under attack, And they probably are, but if that attack has any teeth in our world, it's because we, as Christians, stopped fighting for our marriages and for the marriages of our brothers and sisters a long time ago. And we cannot hope to win some battle out there when we've already surrendered so many in here. Even more than that, though, here's the issue. When I said a minute ago that we get strangely quiet when we talk about our sins or our children's, that's not all a bad thing. When we confront sin in ourselves or our friends or the people that we know, we feel the right instinct to temper our condemnation with gentleness and the gospel. Not to lie, but to temper condemnation with gentleness and the gospel. And too often, we fail to communicate those things when we focus on the sins of outsiders. We can talk so much about homosexuality or whatever other hot button issue there is out there in the world and so little about Christ and the hope that he offers and that is failing to confront sin as sin too because in Christ sin is something that we all share and that we all have hope to see healed in the cross all of which I know is a tough topic and a complicated one and one that is easy to get wrong in either direction. So please, like I said a few weeks ago, don't do that Midwestern thing where the way we handle disagreement is by not speaking for 20 years. <laughs> Come talk to me. My office is open and my calendar is open. But, but Paul's calling is that we name sin as sin in a way that brings conviction to us and acknowledges our deep guilt. That said, some hard stuff. We're sinners. So what do we do? We might want to jump right to the fighting of sin, right? But I think that there's something that Paul wants us to do first. He wants us to grieve the fruit of sin. Grieve the fruit of sin. So first, he wants us to grieve the fact that sin breaks our relationship with God. In verse 6, Paul says that because of our sin, the wrath of God is coming, which opens a whole other can of worms that I'm not going to walk into this morning after that last one. But here's the point. God's wrath isn't capricious or arbitrary. It's not like he's just kind of unreasonably peeved about nothing. God created a world that worked for good, and he created us to work for good in it. And the heart of that good was our communion with God in the garden. Our first parents lived in direct relationship with God. They went for evening strolls in the garden with him. They had conversations with him. It was out of that communion that they were able to live in peace and joy and blessing in the world. And now because of the rebellion of sin, that relationship is shattered. That we do not get to walk in the garden with God. Instead, we hide our shame and spit at heaven in defiance. We are no longer God's friends, but his enemies. Sin has shattered our communion with God. What's more, sin ruins our relationships with each other. Some commentators wonder why verse 11 is included in this passage, right? Where Paul talks about how there's no longer Greek or Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. What does that have to do with anything? The answer is, is that sin doesn't just break our relationship with God, it also breaks our relationships with other people. It creates walls of division that shatter our shared humanity. One of the great lies that we tell ourselves is that sin doesn't hurt anybody. That it's just a private affair. That's just not true. Even sins that seem internal hurt people around us. If you feed on a steady diet of anger or bitterness or lust or fear, it is going to spill over into your actions and speech. And even somehow if it doesn't spill over, we as humans are made to be interconnected creatures and the ways that it diminishes our hearts and causes us to break off relationship hurts and impoverishes people around us who need us and our fellowship with Sin isn't just bad because of some arbitrary set of rules. Sin breaks things in our relationship with God, in our relationship with each other. The beginning of repentance, then, is grieving the way that sin breaks those things, in acknowledging how destructive it is. We can adopt a flippant way of speaking about our failures. You know, I'm a sinner, nobody's perfect. But the more we make light of our sins, the less able we are to actually fight them. Sin destroys people. I have done things to people and said things to people and thought about people in ways that would wound and demean and diminish them. And Sin destroys our relationship with God. It pits us against our good father. It makes us hide from him. It breaks our communion with him. And before we fight sin, we need to feel the sadness of it, the wrongness of it. The psalmist celebrates the law of God as good and beautiful and noble, and it is that conviction of the goodness of God's law that motivates him to repent of the ways he falls short of it. So when you kneel by your bed to pray tonight, or when you come to confession next Sunday morning as we confess our sins, take it as a chance not just to acknowledge our sin, but to mourn it, to learn to hate it. It's tearful eyes, not gritted teeth, that begin to soften and change our hearts. So Paul calls us to name sin as sin, and to grieve it as something destructive and ugly. But Finally, he's calling us to fight it, and he th- I think he shows us the basic outlines of that fight. It's not just a surface-level matter of behavior, but it's about killing the root of sin. Paul wants us to kill the root of sin. How first just by getting to the root of it, right? By acknowledging the broken places in our hearts that sin comes from. So in verse 5, there's an order to the sins that Paul addresses. He starts with external stuff, the visible stuff that you do. And then he roots those things, the sexual immorality and purity, in our minds, in our lust, and our evil desires. And then he roots those things in our hearts, our longings for inappropriate physical pleasure that ultimately, he says, are idolatry. Idolatry isn't just bowing down to a funny statue. Idolatry is what our hearts do when they put any created thing on the throne that rightly belongs to God alone. It's what happens when we make a good thing, our significance, our security, our sexuality. Whatever it is, when we take that good thing and make it an ultimate thing, the thing that we are living our lives for, when we give that thing the place of God and ultimately start to serve it as God, that's idolatry. Paul does something similar in verses 8 and 9. We see this move inward in our relational sense, from things that can spill out in violence and destruction in the world, like anger and rage, to to the way we think in malice, to the way that we just speak about the world in slander and abusive language. And then then in verse 9, Paul says that we get this command, do not lie to each other, which despite the period there in English, is meant to be a continuation of the thought of verse 8. Paul's summing up our relational sins as telling lies to each other, as believing lies about each other, lies that ultimately include, among other things, those labels that are in verse 11. So another root of our sin is believing lies about each other, about the world, about God. We believe that some people are better than others. We believe that God isn't who he is, that he's not holy or that he's not loving. We believe that sin can ultimately satisfy our appetites. And I don't mean we believe it at some surface level, right? I might give the right answers on the test, but in my heart, I believe lies about the world. One of the most important questions you can ask when you start to think about fighting against sin is why. Why am I doing this? So, for example, I can be guilty of saying harsh things about people sometimes, which is sinful. Why do I do that? Well, it's a complicated answer, but here's part of the reason. I am insecure, right? I believe that my worth in the universe rests on my performance and competence rather than Christ's love, and I'm really not sure about that performance and competence. And so since I obviously can't measure up to this sort of divine standard, the best way to make yourself feel better is to tear other people down, right? To diminish them so that you feel like you're better in comparison. In my heart and in my speech, I can try to tear them down so that I feel like I'm all right. Which is not something I like to admit, but I say it because it highlights the reason we have to seek out the root of our sins. Because even if I had perfect self-control and a perfect filter in terms of what I said and never said those harsh things about people, that envy and that insecurity would still be in my heart and it would find some other way to bubble up. So we need to get to the root of sin to identify its root cause but that isn't enough what paul is calling us to do is then to kill it right put it to death as he says in verse five throw it away rid yourselves in verse eight which introduces an important distinction there's the sketch from saturday night live from years ago where bob newhart is a psychiatrist i don't know if you've ever seen it but people come to him with his problems and what he just says is he listens to him and then he says stop it all right? So, you know, this lady comes in, and she, she, she has claustrophobia, and he listens, and then he says, all right, stop it, right? This, this person with an eating disorder, stop it. This person who has destructive relationships, just stop it. Which is funny when Bob Newhart does it. <laughs> but part of what makes it funny is that we recognize that that just doesn't actually work, right? You don't just get over claustrophobia or an eating disorder by just stopping it. And you don't just stop sinning either. There's a crucial distinction between trying to stop sinning and killing sin. The first treats sin like it's just a set of actions. The second recognizes that it comes from something deep within us. Killing sin, according to Paul, requires the death of Christ. His command to put to death sin is using the same language as verse 3, which we looked at last week, which according to that verse says we have died with Christ, that it is something that Christ has done for us in his death that we then take a hold of as we start to put sin to death. It means applying the death of Jesus to the root of our sins. Killing death sin also requires the life of Christ. In verse 10, Paul tells the Colossians that they put on the new self. This is an echo of the earlier verses as well, particularly the idea that we've been raised with Christ in verse 1, and that somehow now we live in Christ, that Christ is our life in verse 4. It means that an essential part of dying to sin comes by replacing it with something else, by replacing it with Christ and the life he offers. We're going to spend more time talking about that next week, but ultimately killing sin is going to require God's help. It's going to require a supernatural work of the Spirit. Continuing on in verse 10, Paul tells us our new self is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Is being renewed. Who's doing that renewing? It's not us. It is God renewing us and restoring us to his image. So what does that mean for us? It means that after we identify the roots of our sin, we need to begin to apply Jesus to them. Take that insecurity I talked about. How do you fight that? It starts with applying Christ's death to it. By applying the truths of the cross to my heart. That I'm secure because of Jesus' death. That my sins are covered. That in God's eyes, I am already significant and righteous and perfect. And so while there is something that I need to grow into for myself, that is never something that I have to earn or tear down others to gain. Christ has provided me with all of the security and significance that I need in the face of my insecure heart. And I fight it by applying Christ's life as well. The source of security in this life and the life to come is never going to come from my performance. It's only going to come from the throne of God, the throne where Jesus sits. He's in control of the future and the present and the past. He is king, and he loves me, and I don't need to make myself look better or feel better than those around me. I only need to make myself his, and that's really what it looks like for all of us. It's where I think that I want to leave us, with Jesus meeting us in the midst of our sin. There's a weight to this call, right? Another another way of spinning Paul's imagery of dying to sin is that it's going to feel like it kills you. It's a hard call, and we cannot remove that hardness from it. But the key to fighting sin, and our hope when we fail to fight it, are the same. The key is Jesus. We can battle against sin because we know we are already planted in Jesus' love. As the writer Jack Miller used to put it, Cheer up! You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. This fight against sin isn't something that burns you God's love. God has already been secured for you in Christ. And we can battle against sin because it is Christ that provides the resources we need to defeat it. As we said, this is God's work and he is working. We are being renewed in the image of our creator which doesn't mean that there won't be sweat and tears and blood, but it does mean that our sweat and tears and blood are somehow mysteriously caught up in union with Christ, and that we have his strength and life flowing into us at the same time. So let's wrestle with our sin together. Let's name it for what it is. Let's grieve it for the destruction it causes, and let's meet it at its root, the idolatry and lies in our hearts. It's it there with Jesus. It is by his death that we die to sin, and by his life we live to overcome it. Would you pray with me? God and Father, I confess to you how often I make sin about something that other people have, and I pray that you would just apply it to my heart. Convict me and help me to die to all of those ways that my flesh is still strong in your spirit, it's still not finished its work. pray that you would do that for each of us, that you would carry us, that you would meet us in the midst of our sin. Let us grieve it, let us see it, but let us see Jesus even more clearly through its tears. Pray these things in his name. Amen. good to worship with you this morning as you go out from this place, even as you bear that weight, um, if you do, which I do, um, both feel the the strength of Christ and his grace as your foundation and help each other to bear it. While, While Paul didn't address it this morning, one of the main resources he gives us in pursuing the Christian life is each other. It's a hard world out there. Take care of each other and go with Christ's blessings.